All right. Hey, Porch folks, it's good to be um, back with you. Happy New Year. And this is the first uh, Sunday gathering of the new year. Um, the good news is we're back in the book of Luke today. Uh, the bad news is I'm back in my brother's house again. Last time I was up here, I uh, my hard drive that had all the files to edit the sermons died. So I ordered a new one. It came. I've been using it for the last few weeks. And then I came up to my brother's house and I got up here and I realized I totally forgot it. So today's um, Sunday gathering is just going to be uh, the sermon. We're not going to have all the other stuff today um, because of, I don't know if you can call it technical difficulties if I'm just an idiot and I forgot the hard drive. But um, yeah, that's what happened. So anyway, we're going to be back in the book of Luke today. So if you want to grab your Bibles or turn in your apps to Luke, uh, we're going to be in chapter 7 and we're going to pick up the story um, where uh, we left off a few weeks ago. So let me just um, uh, open us up in some prayer uh, and we'll get started here. Lord, we are... Uh, uh, grateful that you are faithful to us and that you um, are are guiding our church as we start this new year. Um, we just pray for your blessing as we, we spend some time in your word today, and we just pray for um, a sense of your presence, and we want to hear from you uh, in these words. So I ask that you would be with us now. Amen. So I'm reading this really good book right now um, called, uh, what is it called? The Reappearing Church by Mark Sayers, or The Disappearing. There's two books. Anyway, one of them. Uh, and I'm reading the second one. And um, in this book, I didn't know a lot about Mark Sayers. I have a pastor buddy who just told me, hey, man, you should really check out this book. He was reading it right now. And so um, it actually fit perfectly because uh, the first chapter of this book had some of the stuff that I was already talking about in this sermon. So I'm going to pilfer. A lot of what you're going to hear today is going to be pilfered from this Mark Sayers book. Um, so nobody can sue me for plagiarism because I said where I got a lot of this from. So anyway, um, in the book, and uh, he talks about the way that history is moving. And there's different ways to view how history is moving. What's what's the pattern in history? Now, in Eastern religion, so you've got like Buddhism and Hinduism and that sort of thing, um, they view history as sort of a, a circle, right? So things just sort of repeat itself. And they believe in reincarnation, you know, where you come back um, and they believe in, um, you know, in Hinduism and karma, right? And that sort of stuff. And so they, they see, if they were going to draw it out, they would see history sort of as a circle. Um, another major way to view history is uh, what Sayers calls the secular progressive view. And here's what he means by that. History is moving in a straight line, Right, so from the beginning of history, we're we're moving forward, and what what a secular progressive believes is that somewhere further down the line, things will get better, and there will be a, sort of a, a human utopia. Things will will be uh, perfect, and we'll fi we'll figure this out on Earth, right? And so the secular part of the progressive, right? So that's the progressive part. The secular part is that this is possible without God. And so they see religion um, almost as uh, getting in the way of utopia. Now, as much as I love Star Trek, uh, this is really the worldview behind Star Trek, is that um, humanity will progress until earth is all basically figured out. There's no crime. There's no need for money, right? That sort of thing, right? So that's sort of the secular progressive view. Then there's the Christian worldview. Now, the Christian worldview takes that same line that the secular progressive view takes. Um, but in the Christian worldview, utopia uh, happens when the king shows up and restores everything. So the world is broken. We believe that the world is heading in a direction, but it's not humanity that's going to bring about utopia, right? It's King Jesus. And so what we believe in the Christian worldview is that we don't have to, it's not our responsibility to bring utopia to earth. But because, um, I, don't, I don't like calling it utopia, but you know what I mean, because uh, this better world is around the corner, we are called as the people of God of the God who's going to bring that reality. We're called to live into that reality here and now, to, to show people what it will be like eventually, right? So we try to bring heaven to earth in the way that we serve people, in the way that we love people. We give them glimpses of reality. And so you see here, we have three very different ways to view uh, the way that history is working. 
each of these views really affects the way that that person who holds that view sees the world around them. And you can see how, like, in the, the Eastern religions, the idea of reincarnation really comes into play in the way that they live and the way that they make uh, decisions. In the Christian worldview, you can see that because utopia is not our job, um, we take a different uh, a different outlook on life. But we know that uh, pointing people to the hope of eternity with Christ is our job, right? And so we live with hope in the midst of a, a world system that is opposed to our King Jesus. And so, uh, but we we do so with hope, and that's what we've done throughout church history. But in the secular progressive view, which is kind of the major view um, in the Western world today, um, things are a little bit different. So we have like within the secular progressive view, we have people who are more politically liberal and conservative. And we just had a very um, hot, contentious election, right? And um, people, it's a very divided nation, the United States. People are very upset. But one thing that Sayers was saying that's really interesting is that um, the liberals and the conservatives don't realize how much they actually have in common. That they're both seeing the world the same way. That that we're on this line and that humanity is going to be the ones who ultimately bring about utopia. And what he says is that conservatives see the world. The difference is conservatives think the way that we're going to get there is through free market and freedom from government intervention and all that stuff. That's going to lead to utopia. Liberals kind of take the opposite view that... Uh, the opposite approach, more guidance from the government, uh, more you know, big institutions are needed to, to right the wrong. But the thing is that both of these sides, they don't realize that they're basically trying to do the same thing. They're just trying to do it in different ways, right? They're both operating on a view of the world that, that says that humanity is going to bring us into, um, into a utopia, right? That's how we're going to do it, through human effort and human progress. And I'll read you this quote from the book. Uh, He says, thus, the secular progressive myth seeks to gain the fruit of God's kingdom, such as justice, peace, prosperity, redemption, but without the king. And that's the big difference between a Christian worldview and a secular progressive worldview, is they think that they can do the things that only the king can do. They want to bring about the change in the world that's only possible through the work of King Jesus, right? And what they've done is they've adopted. The reason that they believe a lot of this stuff is because this Christian worldview has dominated the West for so long. And they almost don't even realize that that's where some of this stuff that they believe comes from. And so they they have the same goal, this human utopia, but they've taken the transcendent out of it. And what we mean by that is sort of they've taken anything spiritual, anything outside of the just uh, physical universe out of it. And so the whole point of the sermon today in the section that we're going to read, let me spoil it, is that there's going to be basically two main ideas, right? Only Jesus can bring about restoration. He's the only one that can do it. And the second thing is, as you try to decide, am I going to follow this Jesus as he does this? Uh, The second point is he's the only one with a track record that's worth following, right? He's the only one with a positive track record. So let's take a look um, at uh, this text. So we're going to start today in John chapter I mean, sorry, Luke chapter 7. We're going to read about John the Baptist. He comes back into the story today. Um, I don't have my Bible with me, so I'm going to be reading off my screen. That's right behind the phone here. Um, All right, so it starts in uh, verse 18. So we're actually, though, I'll tell you about this in a minute, actually. We're going to read this section twice. We're going to read this this week and next week. So verse 18. uh, The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, and I'll go on in a second. All right. So John actually had disciples too. A lot of people don't realize that. But Jesus did not invent the idea of disciples. There were a lot of rabbis teaching, you know, teachers in the first century Jewish world, and they would collect groups of, you know, you, I actually read it was a lot of times it was 12 disciples, right? Jesus didn't even make that part up. Um, so they would have these groups of disciples uh, who would follow them around. We know that Andrew was one of uh, John the Baptist's disciples. I think the book of John tells us that. Andrew was one of his disciples. And so John had these group of disciples. Now, if you could imagine, being a disciple was a pretty big commitment, right? Like you were uh, tying yourself to one specific rabbi for a really long time, and you would spend time with them, and you would live with this rabbi, and you would follow them around. Um, 
and uh, you would hear their teaching and emulate the way that they lived. And so you put a lot of uh, hope into whichever rabbi it was that chose you or you chose, however that connection happened, right? And so for these disciples of John, they were just a part of the biggest ministry in Israel in 400 and something years since the Old Testament closed, right? This was a big deal to be a part of the ministry of John. Um, in, uh, I forget which gospel, but it says everybody in you know, Israel basically went out to see John, which was just hyperbole to say like a, a lot of people were followers of John and went out and were baptized by John. Like it was a pretty big deal. Now, all of a sudden, um, John is in prison. And so what happened was, <clears throat> and I think we've talked about this already um, at some point in the book of Luke, uh, but what happened was John was a very bold um a very bold preacher, and he told the truth. And King Herod at the time uh, stole his brother's wife, and so his brother's wife left uh, and and married Herod. And uh, John was very, I guess, brave in the way that he spoke out against that. He said, look, guys, this is wrong. Our leader here is committing a sin. And so John uh, was arrested by Herod. Now, Herod didn't hate John altogether, but his wife sure did. And so this is why John's in prison, and it will eventually lead to his execution. And so, um, you know, you, it'd be a bummer if you were one of, if you were John A, which we're going to talk about more next week. But also, if you're one of John's disciples, right, you just went from the most popular ministry, and, you know, you're an intern at this big, giant mega church and celebrity pastor, and things are going well, and then all of a sudden he gets arrested and he's in prison. Meanwhile, this guy down the street, Jesus, is walking around telling everybody he's the Messiah, and uh, John had told you he's the Messiah as well, right? That was a big part of John's ministry. Um, and so you can imagine these disciples probably not feeling great about it. Well, anyway, uh, you know, probably feeling a little bit jealous. It seems like in the Gospels, there's always a little bit of tension between Jesus's disciples and John's disciples. But anyway, um, so at some point, these disciples go back and they tell John in prison about uh, Jesus's ministry. So John's in prison. He's wondering, okay, I've told everybody that Jesus is the Messiah. So bring me reports about what he's up to. So some of John's disciples probably spent a lot of time with Jesus' disciples following them around and bringing reports back. So they would go back to uh, to John in prison and they would tell him, okay, look, hey, Jesus, he touched this leper, right? Well, okay, that's weird. Uh, he was just teaching on the mountaintops and, uh, you know, the Sermon on the Plain, right? Or the Sermon on the Mount. And what did he say? Love your enemies as yourself. And he's talking about, um, you know, he's expanding on a lot of this stuff in the Old Testament. And, um, you know, do not judge or you will be judged. Like all this stuff, right? So they're, they're bringing these reports uh, back to John. And then look what happens. Verse 19 and 20. So, uh, and John calling two of his disciples to him. So he called two of the group. Uh, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? And when they came, and when the men had come to him, uh, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one to come, or should we look for another? So, the the question now with John is, he's hearing these reports about the work of Jesus, and he calls two of his disciples together, and he says to them, I need you to go ask Jesus a question. I need you to go ask him, are you really the Messiah? When I got up and I told everybody that you were the Lamb of God come to take away the sins of the world, when I announced to everybody that you were the one, you were the Messiah, and when you came to me and were baptized, and I said to you, you should be baptizing me, right? Was I right? Are you actually the Messiah? That's what he means. Are you the one to come? He's picking up this Old Testament language about the Messiah. He says, are you the one to come? Now, why did John ask this question? What was going through his mind? This is a pretty amazing guy, right? Filled with the Holy Spirit from the time he was in his mother's womb. Why was he asking this question? Um, we're going to talk about this mostly next week. So I'll, I'll give you the laydown, or laydown, the, 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 the rundown of what we're going to do here in uh, these two sermons. So today we're going to talk about Jesus's answer to John's question and what he meant by that answer. Next week, we're going to talk about John's doubt and how Jesus was, uh, how Jesus answered. So not the answer, but like, what was his tone? How did he do it? How does Jesus react to doubt? And we're going to read a few stories from the Bible um, about doubt. So, but I'll give you just the quick, and we'll talk more about this next week. But just the quick answer here is, if you read John the Baptist's messages, 
in the in the gospels the, the the sermons that he preached and that sort of stuff if you go look at some of the stuff that he was saying he talked a lot about judgment and he talked a lot about god uh being harsh with sin and uh, you know repentance and all of that sort of stuff and now jesus is walking around and he doesn't seem to be doing any of the stuff that john preached that john was talking about this judgment with fire the holy spirit and fire right uh, he didn't do any of that stuff and so He's probably confused. And one of the things he's confused about is he didn't realize, I'm guessing, that there was two different advents, right? Jesus was coming uh, to earth twice, right? He came once um, to fulfill his mission to defeat sin and death, and then he's going to come back the second time as the king, you know, as the king and the judge, right? So he didn't understand that the, that the second time that Jesus comes is going to be a lot different from the first time that Jesus is coming. And so a lot of the stuff that John was preaching about and teaching about had to do with Jesus's second coming. But here Jesus is at the first advent. And so John is a little bit uh at a little bit is a little bit confused. So, he sends with this question. Um let's take a look at Jesus's answer, right? Or first Luke just sort of summarize gives this little summary statement in verse 21. He says in that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. Okay, so Luke now recaps the ministry of Jesus. Um, the, this is all the stuff. This would be a great verse if we haven't been reading the book of Luke all the way through. He just sort of recaps some of the stuff um, that Jesus has already been doing. And it's actually very similar to Jesus's answer in verse 22. And he answered them, go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news to preach, good news preached to them. So let's set this up. Jesus answers the question with a bunch of uh, allusions and quotes to prophetic passages, mostly from Isaiah. And uh, it's interesting that Jesus doesn't give John's disciples, or John, you know, as mediators, doesn't give John uh, just a straight yes or no answer. He doesn't say, um, of course, I'm the Messiah, you dummy. You just told everybody, you know. He doesn't say that. He tells John, you know, John, you're you're you know the Old Testament, right? You're the last Old Testament prophet. Uh, look at the evidence. He tells him, "Look at what I'm doing," and he says, "If you don't, if you need some help, let me give you six examples." So these six examples. Um, well, let's jump back a little bit. The world was built as a paradise, right? The Garden of Eden was the place to be. Everything was perfect. Humanity lived in perfect communion with God and with each other and with nature. Everything was great. And then in Genesis chapter 3, and we talked about a lot of this, if you joined us last week at Christchurch, where I did the whole story of the Bible in about 30, 35 minutes, um, the the first two acts of the Bible happen in the first three chapters of the Bible, right? So there's creation where God creates everything perfect. And then the fall happens in chapter three. And when our sin in, is introduced into uh, God's good creation, we break everything, right? So there there's broken relationships, broken, you know, um, um, our health is broken. You know, just everything starts to crumble and fall apart. And each of the things that Jesus mentions here is a direct result of the fall. So all these things that Jesus talks about is not the way the world is supposed to be. And so Jesus's answer, what he's doing here is he's showing how A, um, he is fulfilling these Old Testament promises, right? These prophets, Isaiah especially, all these quotes are from Isaiah. Isaiah especially wrote about the coming Messiah. And he said, look, this is the stuff he's going to do. And so Jesus is, the first part of his answer is just to say, you know the prophets, and you know that these prophets have said, this is the stuff the Messiah is going to do. And I'm doing this stuff, so of course I'm the Messiah. The second part, though, is um, Jesus is showing that he is the one who absolutely has the power to reverse the fall, to take what we broke and to put it back the way that it's supposed to be. So let's take a look at this list here. The first item on the list is, he says that the blind will receive or shall receive sight, right? Um, this is a quote from, I'm going to read all these quotes to you from Isaiah. It's from Isaiah 29:18. In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. So that actually covers the, the deaf and the blind in that verse. People are not supposed to be blind. Um, God has given us a beautiful world to look at. I think one of the things that Christians struggle with is the idea of beauty and, uh, 
especially evangelical Christians, right? We like to think logically, and here's our systematic theology, and here's this and that. Um, And when we think like that, we're missing out on something amazing that God has given us. The idea of art and beauty and um, just the the beauty of creation and the beauty of nature. And here's the here's the other part. If you think about it, the nature that we see now. So like I've been going and sitting and working um, at the beach uh, in my car, and that's kind of my new mobile coronavirus office. Right, is I go sit at the beach where nobody can breathe on me, and I look out at the water, and it's absolutely gorgeous. And uh, you know, you see the waves crashing and all that. But that's the world fallen. Imagine how great the world was before it fell. But anyway, I can see those waves crashing and I can look out at the bay and the Golden Gate Bridge and everything. You know, just the beauty of, of everything, you know, or if you go out into the mountains or whatever. I can see that stuff because I have eyes and they work. But there are people out there who have eyes that don't work, right? They can't see that beauty. And that's not the way it's supposed to be. That is super sad. Right, That is a huge, that's a major bummer. Their condition, the reason that people can't see is because the world is fallen and broken and it's coming apart at the seams. And so we haven't gotten to the part of Luke yet where Jesus heals uh, a blind guy, but it actually happens uh, five or six times in the Gospels. Jesus heals somebody. My favorite one is where he spits in the mud and then he rubs it in the guy's eyes. Um, anyway, and then, you know, the, I see people look like trees, that whole story. I love that. But Jesus, up to this point, you know, we there's been a whole bunch of sentences in the Gospel of Luke where it just says, yeah, Jesus healed a ton of people, and it doesn't say exactly what. We can assume a lot of those were blind people, right? And so Jesus is healing blind people, he says, to fulfill the words of Isaiah. The next is that the lame will walk. So from Isaiah 35, 6, it says, then the lame uh, man, sorry, then the lame man uh, leap like it. Oh, sorry. Let me read this again. My, my, I did the thing again where I forgot to make my font big enough. Um, then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy for water breaks forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. So again, we were created when God created Adam and Eve. He told him, look guys, here's this garden. And you know, this is created for you. And your job is to sort of manage and lord over this creation. And to do that, you're going to need to walk around and you're going to need to be, you know, you're going to need a body that works. Um, But again, the sad part is that there's a lot of folks in the world who, for various reasons, um, have bodies that don't work all the way, you know, and they can't walk around and they can't fulfill that part of their their, uh, mandate from God to, to create. And so when Jesus heals somebody of a disease or you know of a spinal injury or whatever it is when he does that what he's doing is um, he's putting them back to the way that it's supposed to be so that they could fulfill that mandate from god Uh, the next one is he says lepers are cleansed so this is the only one of this list and i read a lot about this when i was researching this chapter i'm not going to get into it all it's not that important but um, without a direct reference to an old testament to a quote from isaiah there's no quote in the old testament that says when the messiah comes he's going to heal lepers Um, but uh, there is the story of naaman that we've read now twice Uh, we've actually read it from uh, the book of second kings so um uh, there's a story of the, the foreign army commander who shows up and is healed um, by Elisha. And uh, if you think of Elisha as a pattern, you know, that whole story is a pattern. That's how we can get here, right? Is that Jesus is saying just, and we talked about this a bunch, so I'm not going to beat this horse to death, but Jesus is saying just like that pattern of healing leprosy and bringing clean, uh, you know, the, the clean to the unclean, um, he says Jesus does that in a greater uh, in a greater way. So he's like the true and the better Elisha, right? He's healing lepers. But do you remember the story? Just to again, I it absolutely baffles me to just think about this, like the compassion that Jesus must have had. But do you remember when we read the story of the the leper who was healed, and there was that one little sent that one little phrase, not sentence, phrase where it specifically says that Jesus healed him through touch. He reached out and he touched the guy. And this leper probably had not felt human contact in a really long time. And so Jesus is not only healing this guy and uh, uh, restoring his skin and his body to the way that it was supposed to be, but he's doing so in a compassionate way, in a way where there's no way that this guy walked away without knowing how much Jesus cared for him, how much Jesus loved him. All right, the next one is the the deaf will hear. So Isaiah 42, 18, hear you deaf and look you blind that you may see, right? So kind of like blindness, both of those verses kind of covered both of these, um, is 
this is a sense that God has given us to enjoy his creation, right? Think about how wonderful it is to sit, uh, you know, at a park bench and hear the birds chirping and hear God's creation just, you know, in sounds of beauty. Think about how wonderful um, music is, right? As part of our mandate to build society, people have, have... uh, you know, in art, we create this wonderful music, you know, normally I'm not sitting there now cause I'm not at home, but you know, normally I'm, um, uh, filming these sermons in front of my wall of guitars and I got my drums and everything, right. I love music. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know what I would do if I couldn't listen to music, I would go nuts. Right. Um, but the, the deaf not being able to hear is another one of those senses now that is gone in some people because of the fall, because our world is broken. Um, have you ever seen one of those videos of uh, on YouTube where the little kid goes to the doctor and they put that, I don't remember what it's called, the implant uh, that lets the kid hear. And then they turn it on. And for the first time, a little kid hears like his mom's voice or her mom's voice or whatever. And the kid always starts crying and then the parents start crying. And then I'm sitting there at three in the morning watching these videos talking about who's cutting onions in here. You know what I mean? Um, that's really cool. I love those videos. But what Jesus does with deaf people in the Gospels is even more amazing than what those doctors do, which is, I mean, let's not, let's not diminish it. That's amazing that they can do that. Um, but what Jesus does is even more amazing, right? The deaf guy, um, you know, there's a story where he heals a deaf guy in Mark 7, right? And he sticks his fingers in his ears, and then all of a sudden, this guy can hear, not with some sort of an implant, but the way that God intended him to hear. He can walk around, he can communicate with people, becomes a lot easier, and um, so anyway, Jesus, again, is turning back the, the clock or the way, showing what the way that it's supposed to be. Um, the next one, there's two more. The next one is all of a sudden we go from, okay, that guy can't hear to, you know, now he can't hear to all of a sudden, oh, now the dead are raised. Isaiah 26, 19, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light and the earth will give uh, birth to the dead. Now, I love that that imagery there, that um, you who dwell in the dust awake and sing for joy. That's crazy. So basically what he's saying is that the Messiah will have the power over life and death to walk up to a grave and say, hey, you, a couple of feet under the dirt, can you get up and get out here? And, um, you know, that imagery of the, the guy getting up out of the dust. Um, death is the ultimate example of the way that the world is broken. Death and sort of suffering and death is not supposed to be like this. We're not supposed to die this way um, in pain and in agony. Do you remember Jesus and the story of Lazarus, Lazarus, which is only in the Gospel of John? So we're not going to read that story in Luke. But the story of Lazarus where Jesus says, it says that Jesus went up to um, uh, you know, Mary and Martha's house and Lazarus was dead. And it says he already knew he was going to bring him back from the dead. But then when he, he showed up at the funeral, the shortest verse in the New Testament, right? It says, Jesus wept. Um, he, he, he weeps, he bursts into tears, but it doesn't make any sense, right? Because he already knew what he was going to do. He knew he was going to bring Lazarus back from the dead. He knew Lazarus died so that he could bring him back from the dead so that God's name would be glorified. So why is Jesus crying? Because he's looking at the death and the pain in all of these people. And he's looking at this scene and he's just overcome with emotion because he knows that the world is not supposed to be like this. Um, And we saw the power, you know, so the Lazarus story up to this point has not happened yet. But um, we saw the power of Jesus over the dead when we read the story um, last time of the the widow of of Nain, the the town of Nain. Remember, they were walking out and Jesus walks up to the son who's on the coffin, like the coffin plank thing. He touches the coffin plank and he says to the dude, hey, sit up, man. And God gets up, right? So Jesus has this power over, uh, over life and death. Um, so, so death is introduced into the world because of our sin, and Jesus has no problem with um, overturning that. And, you know, we've talked about, well, we'll talk about that more later on, what I was about to say. Don't, don't worry about it. All right. So then here's the pinnacle, right? The final one in Luke's, Luke's narrative, or Luke's telling of this story. He says, the poor have, the, have good news preached to them. Another quote from Isaiah, the meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. Now, it's really interesting as you're reading through this list, 
What does Luke place at the end of the list? What does he put here at the end as he's writing this down? What does Jesus say? It's not dead, the dead are raised. You think that's what it would be. You think the pinnacle of this would be, oh, and the dead, I have the power over life and death, John. No, that's not what he says. It's this, that the poor will have the good news preached to them. Now, I can't stress enough how much of a major theme this is as we're reading through the book of Luke. The outsiders in, right? Remember the poor means, as we read this, it means more than just financially poor, although that was most of it, right? But it, it, the idea was that there were sort of insiders and there were outsiders. There were people who were important and there were people who were not important. And for a long time, those people who were not important were really on the outside. And Jesus comes along and he says, these are the people that I'm calling to me. These are the people that I will gather and make my new humanity with, right? That I will bring into the kingdom of God. But why, in the first place, are there insiders and outsiders? Because our society is, you know, not just ours, but society in general among people is broken. Think about how fractured the world is. How did that happen? Because of sin, right? Go back to Genesis chapter 3, and it's that verse I always make a joke about, but it really is one of the craziest verses in the Bible, where Adam, God comes to Adam, and he basically says, hey, dude, did you eat the fruit? Come on, man. I told you not to eat the fruit. And Adam says, well, yeah, I ate it, but the reason was because the woman that you gave me, by the way, she made me do it, right? So the very first thing Adam does is he throws the blame on his wife, right? What a chump. And all of a sudden, we see that the relationships between people are broken. Who's the next two people we meet in the Bible? It's Cain and Abel. The very next two people that we meet, one of them kills the other one. And then we start reading about all these absolutely horrible um, relationships between people. And if you look, if you just read the book of Genesis, I mean, just think about how messed up some of the stuff that we read in this book, the way that these people in these societies treated each other, right? Abraham... Um, using his um, his slave as a, as a surrogate mother, almost probably against her will, right? We have the story of Jacob and Esau and um, their their contentious relationship, and then we have Jacob and Laban, um, you know, his father in law, where he's you know he's um, they're tricking each other and they're both con men trying to out con the other one, and then we have Joseph and his brothers, and they sell him into slavery and. You know, we have all these examples of broken relationships. Then you open up the book of Exodus and what's happening? The people of God are slaves in Egypt. And there's this whole, you know, war between the Israelites and the Egyptians and the plagues and all that stuff, right? And, and God redeems his people, right? So all of a sudden now relationships are broken. And that has, that has carried on until now. We still live in a world like this. Um, I forget the stats. I, you know, I didn't look this up at all. But I remember reading somewhere just like how many... Uh, how many days in the last couple thousand years we've had on earth without a war happening. And it was the, the, I forget the number, but it was insanely low. Basically, war has been happening. People have been fractured and broken. And uh, our societies uh, are, you know, kind of like this, right? We're, we're, we're always fighting. And then Jesus comes along and he says, look, I know societies are broken and I know people don't get along. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to take all sorts of weirdos and I'm going to bring them into the kingdom of God. And in the kingdom of God, they're going to get along. And so, you know, we have, um, like after Pentecost, right, we have people from Africa and Asia, and we have zealots and tax collectors, and we have all these different people who have no reason to be in a room together. And they are, and they love each other. Why? Because of the king, right? Because this is one of the things that Jesus does, is he preaches good news to all sorts of different kinds of people, and he brings them together. All right, so that's Jesus' answer. So, uh, like I said, there's kind of two main ideas here. The first main idea is this, that only Jesus can bring restoration. He, only he has the power uh, to follow through on this promise, right? Because he is outside of of our fallen creation um, in one sense. But in another sense, he entered into our fallen world, right? He He has the perfect power of God. He is God become a man, right? He is an actual human being, but at the same time, he is the creator, right? That's what John 1, 3 says. Um, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. He is the one who, who created the entire world, and so because of that, he's the only one that can fix what we broke. Um, uh, I feel like there's a Star Trek episode about this. 
where there's some really complicated, I'm trying to remember, anyway, but it's kind of an illustration, right? Some really complicated engine or weapon system or something, right? And um, when it breaks, the only person that can come in and fix it is the guy who was smart enough to build it in the first place. He was the one who understands how it actually works, right? That's kind of the idea here, is only God is the one who can fix his, um, boy, that fire is really getting going, that's toasty, on my melting my sweater. Um, anyway, only God is the one who has the power to put back together what we broke. We're fallen and broken, and in comparison to God, we're powerless, right, to do anything. So we need our Creator to step into the story and to fix this mess. And Jesus is the one; uh, He is the Creator. He is the one who did that. And so His answer to John is, "Look at all this stuff that I'm doing. I actually have the power to bring about this restoration." And um, the second point then is only Jesus, as we're trying to decide who to follow and what world system to follow or worldview to follow, um, only Jesus has a positive track record, right? This uh, This passage here that we read only really makes sense in light of the gospel story, right? The flow of the story. Jesus made it, we broke it, he redeemed it, and someday he is going to finish putting it all back together. And so, um, what he's doing in his ministry, right, in uh, in healing people, he's not breaking the natural law, right? He's not breaking the, 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 the natural order, but he's restoring it. So when you see a story about Jesus healing somebody who's blind, he's not stepping into the way that things are supposed to be and changing them. He's stepping into the way things are not supposed to be and putting it back the way that it is supposed to be. It's not supposed to be broken. People are not supposed to be blind. People are not supposed to be deaf. People are not supposed to suffer spinal injuries or different things where they can't walk. They're not supposed to have leprosy and they're not supposed to suffer and die. They're not supposed to be excluded from society. None of this stuff is supposed to happen. It's not part of God's original plan. And so when Jesus came into the broken world, part of his ministry was healing people. And what he was really doing was he was showing people the way the world is really supposed to be. He's showing them what this world is supposed to look like, giving them glimpses of the paradise that we forfeited with our sin. Um, You guys know I wear hats every day. I don't think you've ever seen me teach a sermon without a hat on. I have a wall of hats. I have buckets of hats. I love my hats. When I was a kid, I used to sleep in my hat, and my parents made me um, uh, stop doing it, and I was very upset. Um, It's the reason I have short hair is because I don't care what my hair looks like because I have a hat on almost all day, right? Now, one of the things I love to do is to go sit at the Botanical Gardens or somewhere, uh, you know, at Golden Gate Park. Go sit outside, and I love to, uh, you know, lay on a bench and cover my face with my hat, you know, lay back and do this. You know, now, and look up at the, you know, kind of because it shades the sun from my eyes. Uh, now, my hats, these baseball hats, I don't know if you can see this. Like, let's see if I hold that up there. Do you see the baseball hat? It has these little holes in the top of my baseball hat. Now, when I lay down on the bench and I cover my face with the hat and I look up at the trees or I look up at the sky, through these tiny little holes, I can sort of see the sunlight kind of shining through the hat. I can see leaves if I focus my eyes right, but I don't have a whole picture, right? Now, uh, that's kind of what Jesus is doing here with these miracles, right? Is we live in a world where we're living in darkness covered in hats, right? Or actually, let me give you another illustration too. Let me tell you that, and then I'll, I'll hammer it home. Uh, when I was in high school, um, I had an art project uh, in an art class And our teacher took us to the Museum of Modern Art. And I had a big argument with him because when we got to the the museum, there was a a broom, I think, and it was nailed to a canvas. And it was called Broom on Canvas. And my teacher and I argued about whether or not that was really art. And I said, that was the stupidest thing I've ever seen in my life. And it's not art. It's just some guy nailed a broom to a canvas and called it Broom on Canvas. And I said, I could do that. And uh, he's like, yeah, my teacher, yeah, but you didn't. That's what he said. Anyway, so my general rule of thumb is if I can do it, it's not art, right? (laughs) Painting and stuff. Like if I could do it, it's not art. Anyway, so we had a big art exhibit for the whole school, right? Parents would show up and buy pieces of art and yada, yada. And so uh, arts and something, arts with dessert, that's what it was called. Anyway, so we all had to turn something in to sell at this art thing. So what I did was I painted a canvas black. I got a big canvas big square canvas and I painted it black, all black. And then I took my 
paintbrush and I put one the smallest I could make of a dot of yellow in the middle of it and uh, I put it at the art sale and I called it the view of the sun uh, from inside a box with a hole in it $800 right all the other paintings were like 10 bucks I put $800 on it and um, you know my teacher said well that's not art and I said it is you just didn't do it you know anyway we (laughs) I don't think I got a very good grade Um, but anyway, (laughs) anyway Um, But imagine if you really were in a box like that with a hole in it and or if you're looking through my hat and there's just a tiny little bit of the sunlight coming through. Um, That's our world, right? We live in a box with that's completely covered in darkness. We live in a, you know, I guess we have a face that's covered in darkness by our hat. Right. Um, And we need sunlight, but there's just none there. And so what Jesus came and did with his miracles was he showed up inside the box. He came into the box and then he started poking holes. And little beams of sunlight started shining through the box or shining through the hat. And as the more holes that he poked, the more that we could look out and see the way that things are supposed to be. The more that we could look out, out of the darkness, and we can see the sunlight. And so as we read these stories in the gospel of Jesus healing and doing the things that he does, this is what's happening, is he is the one with a positive track record, right? And he is the one that's proving to us that he can, he's giving us these glimpses of of what paradise is supposed to look like. And he's saying, eventually, at the end of like the linear human history, at the end of that line that you've all been living into, he says, I'm going to return and I'm not just going to poke holes in the box, I'm going to take the whole box away. And the sunlight is going to wash over you. And you're going to look around and you're going to see the trees and you're going to see the world the way that it was supposed to be. And he says, so because I've poked these holes already, you can trust that eventually I'm going to come back and take the whole box away. The secular progressive way to look at the world and sort of viewpoint doesn't have the same track record as Jesus. Um, uh, Mark Sayers, let me read to you again from... um, Uh, from his book here. This is kind of a long quote, but I want you to try to follow me on this um, as he talks about this. He says, listen, uh, let's see, where is it? Uh, The promises of our culture and political elites that things will get better are falling flat. We have endless opportunities to pursue pleasure and our desires, and yet so many of us are miserable and anxious. We can traverse geography, time, and space, yet loneliness is growing. So, First, he says, look, they've been promising that things are going to keep getting better and keep getting better, and humanity is going to overcome all of this stuff, and eventually we're going to move our way towards utopia. Is that And, and the Western world is the most advanced civilization in the history of the world. And is that what's happening? Are we getting better? I mean, is... He's, and Mark Sayer's answer is no, right? They're not delivering on their promise. He continues. He says, Silicon's Valley, Silicon Valley's where we live, right? The, the valley here, um, you know, the Bay Area. Uh, their promises that a world connected by social media would be better, more tolerant, a more tolerant world now looks ridiculous. The assurances that a globalized world will be fairer, more peaceful and prosperous places seems shaky. These failed promises are fueling a growing sense of dissatisfaction, a desire to see things change, a hunger for a vision of personal and social life in which humans flourish. Um, So now he's saying, you know, we've had this promise from these social media companies. Facebook says the more connected you are, the better your life's going to be. And their whole view there is that... Um, is that secular progressive. We're going to make the world better and we're going to move us towards utopia. And they're not living up to that promise. Social media is not making people more happy. It's making people more miserable. This this over-connectedness, what it's doing is is exposing our sin. And the reason that this secular progressive view is not going to win out is because we're fallen and we're sinful and we're broken and we can't put the world back. Only Jesus can. He ends the quote with this. He says, post-Christianity. So their idea is that the more we get rid of religion, the better things will be. So he calls that post-Christianity, is experiencing a crisis of doubt over the prospects of its own program of revival. So what he's saying is basically all these ideas that people have been throwing around about how to bring about utopia, they're not working, right? They have no track record. There's nothing there that we can hope in. But Christianity, sorry, Christianity offers 
what uh, they fail to live up to. We have the truth. We have real grounded hope. And we have the creator king who has put down the down payment on our restoration. He showed up to the world and he started poking holes in the box so that we could see the sun. And he says, because I've poked holes in that box, now you can trust uh, that someday I'm going to come back and I'm going to completely remove the box. Now, what does this mean for us? It means two things. That one, we should be crazy hopeful people. As the world around us comes to the realization that they've been sold snake oil as a worldview, uh, they should look over at us and see people who are um, perfectly content and perfectly hopeful and perfectly happy trusting in their king. Um, Think about the story of the jailer in Philippi where Paul and Silas are arrested and tortured and then there's an earthquake. And they've spent the whole night singing hymns and praising God, even in the midst of excruciating pain. Not that they were happy, but they were praising God. Then there's an earthquake and all the walls fall down. And the jailer thinks, I'm going to be executed because I let these prisoners go. And Paul calls out to him, hey, dude, we're still here. Don't worry about it. You know, we're not going to run away and cost you your life. And so the jailer runs up to them and says, how can I get saved? See, he saw the way that they lived and the hope that they had. As his worldview came crashing down and he was about to kill himself, Paul stepped in, saved his life, right? And this guy was able to see uh, and hear and understand and accept the gospel story, right? At some point, the people around you are going to come to a moment like that jailer, right? Where they look over, uh, their life starts to fall apart. And when that happens, and then when they look over at you, what are they going to see you doing? What are they going to see in your life that's going to make them go, I want what you have. I want your worldview because mine is falling apart. And so to have this kind of hope, to have the kind of hope that we need to um, uh, to be sort of a light in the darkness, um, uh, to sort of shine a light on the darkness of that secular progressive myth, right, um, that humanity is going to turn around, right, to, to have that kind of hope we have to be completely grounded in scripture. And so that's my second point here. My second sort of application point is that we need to be shaped by scripture and not by the world around us. Um, One of the saddest parts about being a pastor for all the years I've been a pastor and, um, you know, Mark Sayers talks about, well, let me jump back. Mark Sayers talks about this in his book, right? Where he says, um, towards the beginning, he explains that there's so many people out there, he calls it street philosophy, where they don't even know why they believe what they believe. And there's these ideas that have just sort of trickled down to them, and they've never put any real thought into it. And so most of what people believe is just sort of absorbed from what's around them. It's not well thought out. And like I said, one of the most saddest, one of the saddest parts for me about being a pastor all these years is to see how many church people who have been absorbing this worldview that's completely um, uh, goes against the biblical worldview, right? And they've been absorbing this and they don't even know it. They don't even realize that that's what's happened to them. They've been shaped by something in the world. And so my second challenge to you is this, right? Be intentional about what it is that's going to shape you. Don't just be some sort of, um, don't just, be on autopilot through life and wake up and realize that you've been shaped by these different ideas that uh, go against what we read in the Bible. And so what we want to do is we want to be shaped by the word of God. We want to be shaped by scripture and we want to be intentional about how we make that happen. And so this is where I'll do the sort of the reading plan plug, right? This is the first sermon of 2021. And I'm actually recording this in 2021. What's today? It's New Year's. Yeah, yesterday was New Year's Eve. Um, And so it's 2021, and we are together as a church. We're going to do a reading plan. We're going to cover the entire New Testament once, and we're going to cover the book of Psalms once. So we're not reading the whole Bible. We're just reading, you know, a big chunk of it. And uh, I've broken up these sections. It's about a chapter of reading per day. Um, If you haven't already started, it's not too late to catch up. We're only a few days away. You know, we're only, by the time you guys watch this, it'll only be a few days into it. Um, But we're going to post every Sunday at midnight. Sunday morning at midnight. Um, The reading plan for the week will go live. There's going to be some Bible project videos in there that you can watch as you do the reading. We're going to have time to talk about it and that sort of stuff. But um, when when you're shaped by scripture, right, the hope from that first idea that, that we want people to look over at us and see hope is going to be all over your face, right? You're going to read the stories of Jesus and you're going to see his glimpses of eternity. And it's going to drastically affect 
Um, it's going to drastically affect the way that you live in the here and now. It's going to completely change the way that you live your life um, and the way that you see the world around you. And so this is why we're doing the reading plan together, right? Because, you know, it'll draw us together as a community. But ultimately, we want to be shaped by God's word. We want him to use his word to really impact the way that we see the world. And one of the people in church history that I've seen do this better than anybody else is a woman named Johnny Erickson Tata. And I've talked about her before, but she was in a diving accident. And so she's one of these people who can't walk, except Jesus has not come along and healed her. And she has this amazing life and testimony of um, just suffering through depression and all sorts of stuff and um, seeing hope in Christ and um, really working and starting up an amazing ministry, Johnny and Friends, that works with handicapped people. And tons of people have come to faith because of her accident and because of who she is. And um, I'll end just with this Johnny Erickson Tata quote. It says um, from her book about heaven, she says, every time my corset digs in my side or I'm faced with a a four-week stint in bed, I look beyond the negatives and I see the positives. I recall that pilgrims are not supposed to feel home at home on earth. I set my heart and mind on the things above and dream of the day that I'll see my bridegroom. I remember the promise of a new body, a new heart, and a new mind. And I think about all the crowns that I'll be able to cast at Jesus' feet. These things these things make up the soon and coming reality. So today, get your mind on the hereafter. I love that. There are very there are few people who I read and I or I hear them talk or whatever. And I just know that person is absolutely shaped by scripture. That person's entire life has been broken down um, and, and reshaped by God's word. And I think that's the kind of person I want to be. And uh, she's definitely one of them. And so that's why we're doing the reading plan. Um, and, um, uh, you know, that's why we, as we read these words, as we read, not just these words, these stories, and as we look and see who Jesus is, we can have hope that he's going to come back and he's going to put things back together. And it's going to affect everything about the way that we live as individuals. It's going to affect the way that we live as families, and it's going to affect the way that we live together I'm here in San Francisco as a church. And so I really would encourage you to jump on the, the reading plan with us if you haven't already, um, to email me questions as you're reading. I have no idea what this is talking about. Um, but to really just read with a prayerful heart and say, Jesus, I want to see these glimpses of who you are, and I want to see these glimpses of eternity so that I can be transformed um, by your Holy Spirit. Amen? Let's pray. God, I thank you that... Um, You've given us your word, and I thank you that in your word we read these stories about um, how you are going to triumph over death, and you're going to come back, and you're going to you're going to put the world the way that it's supposed to be. And we thank you for just the glimpses that we have, the holes that you've poked in our box um, that's covering us in darkness. You know, so we just you know, as your people, Lord, we want to live faithfully to you here in Babylon, and um, we want to love you well. We want to serve you, and um, we want to. Uh, be a light in the darkness um, in the lives of our friends and our neighbors. So we just lift our city up to you. We lift up this new year um, as um, as uh, you know the calendar turns over, Lord, and um, we we just pray for the next twelve months of our church and our lives, and we just ask for your blessing. And so we just love you so much, and we we thank you for who you are, what you've done, but. Even more importantly, Lord, we thank you for what you still have to do in the gospel story and what you've promised us that you will do. So we just lift all this up in your name. Amen.